The sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s had a seismic effect on our culture. Many of you will remember the battle cry, make love, not war. And the mantra, it's my body, don't tell me what to do with it. The youth of the 60s are the parents and the grandparents of today. That generation, by and large, runs our country. Their ethic was then and seems to be now, don't you dare try to restrict me with your view of morality. Who are you to tell me what is right and what is wrong? Postmodernism gone wild. The problem with revolutions like this one, which in reality was multifaceted and included not just sex but the whole drug thing too, and the introduction of moral relativism, is that these revolutions leave legacies. Today we're affected by what happened in the 60s and the 70s. Jay Buzhashevsky, who is a professor of government and philosophy at the University of Texas, in his book Revenge of the Conscience, addressed this issue when he said, things are getting worse very quickly now. The list of what we are required to approve is growing ever longer. Consider just the domain of sexual practice. First, we were to approve sex before marriage, then without marriage, now against marriage. First with one, then with a series, now with a crowd. First with the other sex, then with the same. First between adults, then between children, then between adults and children. The last item has not been added just yet, but will be soon. You can tell from the change in language, just as you can tell the approach of winter from the change in the color of leaves. As any sin passes through its stages, from temptation to toleration to approval, its name is first euphemized, then avoided, then forgotten. A colleague tells me that some of his fellow scholars call child molestation, and I quote, intergenerational intimacy. That's euphemism. A good-hearted editor tried to talk me out of using the term sodomy. That's avoidance. My students don't know the word fornication at all. That's forgetfulness. The sexual revolution left us with a culture that is in many ways sexually dysfunctional. It did not produce the happiness it promised but a trail of heartbreak. When Jennifer and friends appear as happy as they can be on television with unrestrained sexual activity outside of marriage, the real world is tragically different. Crisis pregnancy centers are flooded every day with young girls who are in their mid-teens who are escorted into the facility by a parent or friend because the baby daddy is nowhere to be found. Their lives are shattered before they even get started. Their dreams of becoming a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or even just finishing high school now seem out of reach. With very few exceptions, they have ensured themselves a lifetime of living below the poverty line. Unrestrained sexual behavior doesn't seem so glamorous in the waiting room of a crisis pregnancy center. There were over 19 million 
cases of sexually transmitted infections last year, with about half of those occurring in young people between 15 and 24. About 750,000 teenagers get pregnant every year. Psychological studies have linked early sexual behavior with multiple partners to depression, low self-esteem, and an impaired ability to form healthy long-term relationships. The revolutionaries of the 60s promised contentment, and they delivered emptiness, an emptiness that echoes to this very day. There is a reason that God put boundaries on human behavior, and it was not to rob us of happiness. Quite the opposite, in fact. Sex is not a bad thing. God invented it, but he created it to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. Participate outside the God-ordained margins, and it becomes a source of unhappiness, not contentment. Our passage this morning, as you might have deduced from our introduction and from the scripture reading, focuses in upon, upon the problem of porneia, translated sexual immorality, in the context in which we find this passage. And in this particular context, the term porneia refers to sex for hire, or prostitution. Some Christians in Corinth were apparently consorting with prostitutes and justifying their actions with pithy but questionable theological sayings. Paul is not as specific here as he was in chapter 5 and in the first part of chapter 6, chapter 5 with a man sleeping with his stepmother, or earlier in chapter 6 with respect to people in the church that had filed lawsuits against one another. Here, it doesn't look like he has a particular incident in mind but a more general trend of behavior. This actually might be worse. A trend that, like those already mentioned, has the ability to seriously injure the individuals who are involved and damage the testimony, the public testimony of the church. This is no small thing, my friends. This is no small thing. A church's reputation is intimately related to its testimony. A bad reputation hurts the message of the church. And it's the message that's ultimately important. Not me, not you, but the message of Jesus Christ. That's what's ultimately important. The message of Christianity is not just another philosophical discussion to have at Starbucks over a $3 glass of iced tea. It's a matter of life and death, eternal life and eternal death. The stakes are high. Our public testimony matters, as does our individual testimony. The passage begins this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, or porneia, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. 
the phrase that Paul begins with, all things are lawful for me, is understood by the majority of New Testament scholars as a maxim that was popular with the free thinkers and libertines in Corinth. One that has a grain of truth in it, but one that Paul adapts here to make his point. His point would go something like this. Yes, there is a great deal of freedom in the Christian life, but I will not use my freedom in an inappropriate way. I will use my freedom to edify, to build up. I will use my freedom for that which is beneficial, not destructive. Yes, there is freedom, but with freedom comes responsibility. In 1 Corinthians, in this passage specifically, but in general, in 1 Corinthians, that which is beneficial is primarily seen as that which benefits others. Did did you catch that? That which is beneficial in 1 Corinthians is not so much what benefits us. It's what benefits somebody else. My brother, my sister, my mother, my father, my friends. The the people that go to my church, that's what Paul considers beneficial in this context in 1 Corinthians. Whatever's beneficial is primarily beneficial to others, not me, at least in this context. The second phrase, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, was probably also a slogan that was popular among those who were promoting a licentious lifestyle. Their argument would have gone something like this. Just as the stomach was made for food, so also the body was made for sex. And one day this body's going to be gone. So what difference does it make what I do with it now? It'll be dust someday. I eat when I'm hungry. So why shouldn't I have sex when I feel the urge? An underlying implication is that there really isn't anything. My business doesn't correspond with your business. Mind your own business. This person in Corinth is saying. But Paul disagrees. Totally disagrees. Yes, the body was made with a capacity for sex. True. But it was not made for sex outside of marriage. It was not made for sex outside the boundaries that were set up by the one who created us. Let me, let me pause and say, this has ramifications all across the board, not just for this immorality situation that he's dealing with in Corinth, but for everything for which God has set up boundaries. You want to be happy? Do you want to really truly be contented? Do you? I do. Well, then we need to do things God's way. If we want to do it our way, and it's, as long as it's God's way, that's fine. But if we want to do something our way that's apart from God's system, you're not going to be happy. Now, this may be the last time that you choose to come, but that's the truth. If you're not going to do it God's way, you'll never be happy. Never. Now, people may tell you you'll be happy. You may watch Friends and Seinfeld on television, and it looks like they're happy. And they're well-done shows. Don't get me wrong. But they're not happy. Again, all you got to do is go sit in the waiting room at a crisis pregnancy center or, dare I say, even at Planned Parenthood. And you tell me if those girls are happy then. 
when they see their life going right down the drain. There's no contentment for any of us outside the boundaries that God has set up for us. Now, this passage happens to be about sex, and we're not going to avoid it. And like I said before, sex is not a bad thing. God invented it. It's a wrong application for Christians to run the other way and act like that's a bad three-letter word. It's not. It's a beautiful word if it's within its context. It's a beautiful thing in its context. To say otherwise is to deny the wisdom of the Creator. But it's got to be within its context if we ever want happiness. So Paul disagrees with this objector who says food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. That's the objection. That's what, that's what somebody is retorting to Paul. He disagrees with that idea. Yes, the body was made with a capacity for sex. That's true, but not outside the boundaries that were set there by the Creator. I know there's a great deal of discussion about this in today's contemporary society, particularly in political discussions. The whole idea of who are you to tell me what to do? Who is a culture to tell me what to do? I know there's discussion. And I also agree that governments should be restricted with respect to what can be done regarding personal freedoms. I totally agree with that. In fact, Pascal wrote, nothing is so defective as those laws which correct defects. It's tough when government gets in and tries to do this, but this is not about government here. This is about you and about me as individuals within the context of a local church. And then in our country, it happens to be that the government is made up of individuals like you and like me. But Paul's not talking about the Roman Empire here. He's talking about your personal life and how it affects the life of the church and the testimony of the church. He's not talking about man's law. He's talking about God's law. He's talking to Christians about their responsibilities as Christians, which takes priority in the discussion. Well, look at verse 14. Now God has not only raised up the Lord, but he also will raise us up through his power. What he's doing is refuting that idea that one day we're going to be gone, so it really doesn't matter what happens in this life. The whole idea, I'm not going to be here so I'm going to, in the future, so this body's going to be dust, so I'm going to do whatever I want to right now. It's kind of the phrase that Jesus used, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We're going to die. Well, that's not a philosophy of Christianity. That's stupid, frankly. I mean, if I may be so crude, that's a horrible philosophy. You can't live with that. The whole, it doesn't hold water. We will die one day. That's true. But just as surely the Christian will be raised. It's true we're all going to die. In this room, every one of us is short of the rapture of the church. I don't mean to bring you bad news. It's not terrible news anyway if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It really isn't. I mean, we want to pray for health as long as we're here. But dying is not a terrible thing if you're a believer. It's a horrible thing if you're an unbeliever. And if you come this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, you should be afraid of death. You have no rational reason to not fear death. But you know what? The beauty of it is that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Now, if you'll trust Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, if you'll place your faith and your faith alone in Him, then you don't have to fear death. And then things will be different for you. And I pray that you'll do that if, if by some act of providence you've come in today and you've not ever done that. But for us who have 
humbly, through no merit of our own, on our knees receive that free gift of salvation by grace through faith, the fact is that we will die. But there's an equally true fact, and that is that one day we're going to be raised. So the whole idea, it doesn't matter what I do in my body, that's bunk. It does matter what we do in our body. This body will be transformed. This body will be raised. The one that you're sitting in right now, that body right there is going to be transformed. Not something completely different. Now, how he's going to do it, I don't know. There have been people, the church age, that have been dead 2,000 years. David, King David's been dead 3,000 years. His body is dust that's scattered across the desert in some form. But God in his creative majesty is going to take these molecules and he's going to put them back together. And the body that you're sitting with here today is going to be the body that's resurrected. Now that may depress some of you. I I thought about that too. (laughs) I thought about it too, but there's a lot of speculation. Well, is it going to be a 33-year-old body? Because Christ says it's going to be like his. That'd be fine by me. It'll be a perfect body. Everything's going to work just fine. It'll, it'll be the, the, your body with perfection. And since God is the greatest artist in the universe, you'll be real happy with it when you see yourself in the mirror. But the point is, this body will be resurrected. The, fu- the future does not promise redemption from this body, but redemption of this body. So Paul's view would have gone something like this. Whatever actions I perform in this body, which reflect respect for the Lord, are permissible. Whatever actions threaten to dominate me in a negative way, are therefore not respectable and are not permissible. It's as simple as that. It's pretty easy, really. If I'm doing something within the boundaries that the Lord has set up, then that's okay. If I'm outside those boundaries, it's not okay. No matter how many movies, how much music, how many television shows tell you otherwise. When I was researching this sermon, I researched the lyrics, both to songs from the 60s that had to do with the sexual revolution and songs from today that had to do with the sexual revolution. I had them in my notes. And then yesterday morning, I took them out. Because as relaxed as you are, I don't think you'd have been able to handle it. Some of them are pure pornography. And I don't use that term lightly. It's tough. And that's what people are listening to. And you know something about music? It's kind of like art, a lot of art forms. Paintings are this way. You go through a museum and you almost get a headache. I went through the Musée d'Orsay in, in Paris some time ago. We walked through it in two or three, four hours. That's all we had. I had a splitting headache by the time I left. It's just to see one masterpiece after another after another. You know what I mean? It's incredible. And I realized I pronounced that Musée d'Orsay. That's how it's pronounced. But music has an ability to get past filters in our soul. We need to watch it. It has the ability to, to bypass our filters and get right into our soul. I would invite you, if you're interested, you can look some of the stuff up on your own. You just plug into Google lyrics to, and then you'll see probably a lot more than you want to. But you at least need to know what's out there, what people are listening to. It's so empty. Verse 15, after Paul says, listen, it does matter. Your body is, this body's going to be resurrected. So you can scratch that argument. In verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Absolutely not. No way. No, no way, Jose. No way at all should that happen. Meganoito, may it never be. As those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ to forgive us our sins and to grant us eternal life, we have become united with him. As one hymn says, in a mystic sweet way. But we've become united with him. So we have a responsibility to live accordingly. Paul is saying rather bluntly, you don't take this body which is in this mystic sweet union with Jesus Christ and then place that same body in union with a prostitute. It doesn't work that way. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself with a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. This really gets to the crux of Paul's discussion here. The crux of why we, it is an abomination to do certain things with our body. And that's because we have this intimacy with the Almighty. In fact, all three members of the Godhead dwell us. The two that are stressed here are the Son, and later on in our final verse for today we'll see the Holy Spirit, where the, the, the Holy Spirit dwells us, so this body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple of God. But you see, this gets to the heart, the real meat of what Paul is saying. You're different from a non-Christian. You have the Lord of the universe indwelling you. You're united with Christ in a special and intimate way. And not only that, later he'll say you've got the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You don't take this body and then go join it up with a prostitute. It's exceedingly sinful in God's eyes. It's interesting to me how a lot of Christians, especially in the first few centuries, took some of their theology not from the Bible but from the philosophers. The Greeks had this idea, the Greek philosophers had this idea, that the body was exceedingly evil. They, they understood sin even if they didn't call it sin, but they understood that. And the idea of somebody like Plato would have been, this body is really bad. It's corrupt. And I know I'm doing bad things in it, so I need to get rid of it as soon as I possibly can. I need to get out of it as soon as I possibly can. Now, some Christians kind of picked that idea up in the first few centuries. It was unfortunate, but they did. They don't even know where they got it, I don't think. But they picked up the idea. So the, the best thing for me as a Christian is to get rid of this life as soon as I can. Now, I'm not talking about the thing in Revelation, even so, Lord, come quickly. That's a whole different thing. John sees what's hap happening in the future. He sees that all these bad things are going to happen, but God's going to win in the end. And he basically says, okay, well, if that's the way it's going to be, let's get it on. Let's get this program going. But that's not what I'm talking about. Some Christians have the idea that this body is just something we need to escape as soon as we possibly can. And Paul would say, no, a thousand times, no. We're only given one life to live here on this earth. We're only given one life in which we can make these choices for or against God, to live within the boundaries or outside the boundaries. Only once. You only go around once. So we need to live every day to its fullest. The Romans had a proverb for it. Carpe diem, seize the day. It's not a bad phrase. Christians need to do that too. In this body. True, it's a body of corruption. It's a body of sin. 
But it's also a partner with the soul in performing the work of God while we're still on this earth. So we shouldn't have a false view of this body. We need a real view of this body. And since this body is currently in union with Jesus Christ, wherever you go, he goes. Could I put it that way? You don't need a GPS tracking device on your car so your wife or your husband knows where you go because God knows where you go. And I don't mean this to spoil your fun. I can see by the looks on a couple of you, it just spoiled a lot of fun. But that's, that's, not, the, that's not the point. I won't look at you right now. But it's, and I can't look anywhere. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. God's got his own GPS system. It's called his omnipresence. But he also indwells you. So wherever you are, God is too in the multifaceted ways. So you don't take this body and join it with a prostitute. You don't take something that's holy and join it with something that's unholy. He goes on to, to describe that this, this, sexual reu- this sexual union between this person in Corinth and this prostitute is not simply physical. I know that we would like to rationalize and say that it is. There's nothing to it. It was just a physical thing. I've heard that in marital counseling situations where one party or the other would say, well, it didn't mean anything. It was just purely physical. Well, you'd like to think that, but the Bible says it's not really. God designed sexual intimacy to occur between husband and wife because it's more than physical. When two people get together in that way, there's a union, not just of the body, but of the soul, the whole person. Again, in a mystic, sweet way. And he goes back to Genesis to make his point. When he says the the two will become one flesh. He's going all the way back to the original marriage ceremony. So in God's eyes... There is no such thing as casual sex. As hard as we might try to suppress the truth in this area, it can't be done. Sex can either be beautiful or it can be destructive. But it can't be just casual. If exercised inside marriage, it can be beautiful. If outside, it will inevitably, inevitably have destructive consequences here. The emphasis in this passage is not so much with respect to treating another person as a commodity, just paying someone for sex, as bad as that is, as unloving as that is. But that's not really what the emphasis here is here. The emphasis in Paul's eyes here is upon the act as a violation of one's personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a holy union, and you don't take this holy union and make it unholy. Verse 18, a verse that we know well. Flee immorality, flee porneia. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. As Cam read the scripture reading this morning in the book of Proverbs, and as this passage says here now, you're not just supposed to walk away 
from immorality or from porneia. And again, in the context, it's sex with a prostitute. But the term porneia is, can be broadened to anything that's sex outside the boundaries of, ma- of marriage. You're not supposed to just turn around and stroll away. You're not supposed to just walk away. You're not just supposed to avoid it. You're supposed to run away. You're supposed to flee like there's a hungry lion running after you. That's what, that's what our attitude should be because it's deadly. It's damaging. But that's not what we do. I'm talking, that's a very corporate we. But, but we go right up to the edge. And we, we go, want to look at it a little bit. Maybe imagine how that might be. We get a little bit closer, a little bit closer, and then bam, you're, you're dead. You're dead. It's destructive. So Paul says, don't get close to the edge. And this is with any sin, but the context happens to be sex with a prostitute. I hope that's not a problem for anybody in here. I hope you can be objective. But it is broad to anything that's outside of God's boundaries. You don't get close to it and wonder how lovely it might be. You turn around as soon as you identify it and you run the other way. As fast as you can run the other way. Flee porneia. Flee fornication. And again, in this context, flee this idea of sex with a prostitute. Run away as fast as you possibly can. The final phrase of verse 18 is a difficult one. For it is true that other sins are committed in the body. For example, drunkenness certainly affects the body, but it affects it in a chemical way. What I said a minute ago was this is a very, Paul's, the crux of Paul's argument is that we're in union with Christ. And so when we take this body that's in union with Christ and, and attach it to a prostitute, this is an abomination. It's terrible. But this is, this is something that's even over and above the whole idea of drunkenness. Now, I'm not excusing drunkenness. There is a chemical union that takes place there. But, but Paul is stressing here the damage that is done because of the union of intimacy, which is really not intimacy. It's a false intimacy. It's a counterfeit intimacy. And then finally, in verses 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In chapter, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, most of you will remember that Paul used this temple imagery and applied it to the entire church. The local church was a temple of the Holy Spirit. Here, though, he applies it to the individual. The believer's body, while fallen, to be sure, is a sacred place of God's presence. The Holy Spirit indwells us. A lot of people miss the point, and I'm, I'm sorry to even have to bring it up, but, but a lot of people miss the point here, and they want to stress what I would think are more trivial things. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore you shouldn't be smoking those cigarettes. You shouldn't be drinking those Dr. Peppers. You ought to be happy that the hostess comp- company has filed for bankruptcy because the cupcake... <laughs> I don't know whoever told me that, but I went down and bought two dozen hostess cupcakes. So that happened. <laughs> Gained five pounds until I realized that they didn't file for the type of bankruptcy where they're going to actually go out of business, just the reorganization. 
went and talked to the guy at my local convenience store, and he said, no, no, we'll still have Hostess cupcakes. It's fine. <laughs> so I was going to eat every one of them I could. <laughs> this is not so much about smoking or Hostess cupcakes or Dr. Peppers. This is something significantly more important. Although those things may be in view peripherally. But the Holy Spirit indwells us. That means we don't have unlimited freedom. We're responsible to behave consistently with who we are in union with Christ. As one that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's responsibilities that we have as believers. We've been given a, a great blessing. So Paul reminds us as he concludes this paragraph that this special position that we have, since we're not, we're not our own anymore, we belong to God, this is a special position, but it came at a price, pretty stiff price, not to you and not to me. This is what I call the apostolic ace trump. Anytime an apostle wants to really drive home a point, what does he bring up? The cross. Our redemption. If he really wants to drive something home, he, bring, he reminds us of the cross. And he says, we've been bought with a price. Now, it didn't cost us anything, but it cost God everything. When you consider what he paid, so that we might have the opportunity to live with him forever, he paid everything for us. He owned the cattle on a thousand hills, and that's not what he paid the price with. He could have had some unknown angel that lived in some unknown part of the universe that no one would miss that had no family or no friends, and he could have put that angel and poured all the sins of the world out upon that angel, but it wouldn't have worked. The only way, not just the best way, but the only way that he could provide for our salvation was to sacrifice his son. All that is wrapped up in this phrase, you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. I am not my own. Yes, I can say I have certain liberties and I may demand my freedoms, but in the back of my mind, I know I don't. Whatever my master says goes. And I have no right to shake my fist at him and say, no, that's not the way that it is. I should be able to set my own rules and my own boundaries. Thank you very much. No, I've been bought. To make this personal, I have been purchased with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. He owns me. That's why the phrase doulos is used in the New Testament to describe us. We're servants, we're slaves. Some new translations don't like that word slave because of poor connotations. Listen, it's okay. That's what we are. We're slaves to him. We belong to him lock, stock, and barrel. Now, he's a loving master. He's a benevolent master. But we do belong to him. So what is our responsibility as we conclude? To glorify him. That's the responsibility. Not to attach this body to a prostitute. And thereby ruin the test, my own personal testimony and the testimony of the church when the church's message is a life and death thing. Not to do that or, again, by extension, not to, not to engage in any behavior that's outside the boundaries that God set up. In the terms of meaning, it means the prostitute. And in terms of significant, it has to do with all of our behaviors outside of the boundaries that God set up. Salvation was free to us, but God paid a price that's beyond words. Therefore, we should remember this and use this body to glorify God. When we are focused daily, even moment by moment, on the cross, 
and what it took to procure our salvation and our union with our Creator, we will be less likely to engage in behavior so insulting to God and so destructive to our spiritual lives and to the testimony of the church.